Thank you, Paul and music team. You know, we set this date and then we thought it's the first available time for us to get together. But it's Valentine's Day. So I thought, well, I'll just throw this at everybody. Who do you love more, Jesus or your husband or wife? But <laughs> so that's, not, that's not really fair, is it? And then we hear it's going to be five inches of snow and below zero. And then Paul had a breakdown. His vehicle broke down on the way today. <laughs> so you think all of these things happening, but we still managed to get ourselves here. And we're so thankful to, to be here at this time to worship together. And my prayer is this, that as we open God's word today, that God will speak to all of our hearts and help us grow in our faith, which is a great passion that we have. First, that you know Jesus as your personal Savior. And second, that you grow in your faith and that you keep on growing your entire life. So we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and be looking at verse 19 and the verses that follow that. When a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, everything changes. Everything changes. Now, it doesn't mean that you are driving a new car, a different car the next day, or you live in a different house, or you're going to have to get a different job, or that you have a different haircut, or that you wear different clothes necessarily. But everything has fundamentally and radically changed about your life from the inside out. And now you have new values, you have new goals, you have new desires, you have a new peace. And you're more in tune and unity with your relationship with your Heavenly Father. But you're more out of relationship with the rest of this world. And what happens is that we can tend to get opposition and difficulties just being a Christian. Just following Christ will mean that there is opposition. And so this letter, like many of the letters in the New Testament, are given to encourage us. And that's what we need. We need to be encouraged. I'd like to begin, we're in Hebrews, by giving a little bit of context of this entire letter. So when we get into 10, 19 to 25, that's, that we're looking at the today, I keep wanting to say this morning, this afternoon, is when we look at this, we understand the framework of it. But So let me, let me read this from Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. This is one of the most magnificent introductions to a letter I've ever read. It says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. <laughs> that is just magnificent. Now, if you're doing reading through the Bible this year, some of you are doing through the New Testament, others through the Bible, you come to the book of Leviticus, and that's where I am right now in Leviticus. And 
typically, I, I think, wow, this, can I get through this more quickly? <laughs> Do I read it faster? Because all of these sacrifices and priesthood and tabernacle and washings and this blood and all of, what does all of this mean? Well, Hebrews explains what that means. In fact, in chapter 10 and verse 1, it says, these are a shadow of things to come. So Leviticus, with all that's happening in this sacrificial system, is a shadow of things to come. So you unlock the Old Testament by first reading the New Testament. So in light of all of these things, in light of what we learn about Christ, because this is really the message, that, that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these prophetic things that we've read about from long ago. As Christ is fulfilling these things, he is the one who fundamentally and radically changes your life. Is Jesus Christ and no other. And when he changes you, it has an effect. There's cause and effect. And the, the effect is you're a new creation and you need to be walking in that path. And so this is what the writer is saying to us. In light of all that, there are three challenges. So when I read this text, three times you're going to hear these words, let us. Okay? So it, it's, you kind of tie that to what's changed in Christ. Now, how can we be challenged to encourage one another? How, how can we, as a family of believers, encourage each, other's, each other? So I'll begin verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Now, this is imagery from Leviticus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, let us Hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And then our third one, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting the gathering together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." So did you pick up the three let us statements? He says, let us draw near in faith. Let us hold on to our confession of hope. And let us consider one another to love. Faith, hope, and love. Now, these are unique to Christianity. You say, well, everybody talks about faith, hope, and love. But they are unique to Christianity in this way. First of all, that our salvation and eternal life is by faith alone. They call that the sola fide. 
It is by faith alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus baptism, not faith plus church attendance. You, you've heard me say that many times. It is faith alone. No other religion, no other group will say that. It's always a system of do, do, do. Do this, do this, do this. Check these boxes, follow these things. This is by faith alone. That is distinctive with Christianity. Hope. The hope of eternal life. The certainty of eternal life. We're not living for this world. We'll enjoy this world. We, in fact, we do a lot of the same things everybody else does, and we have a great time doing it. In fact, probably more because we see it in perspective. The hope is eternal life. And that is ever before us. And then love. Love is distinctively Christian. When asked this question, what, what is it, it that defines your religion? What is it that is the full expression of what you believe? It's not a doctrinal statement. As much as I love doctrine and theology and dotting every I and crossing every T to make sure we have a very precise belief, no, it, it, it is love. Love is the unique characteristic of Christianity. And so these are the things that are fundamentally and radically changing us. Faith, hope, and love. And so the writer is saying, I want you to keep encouraging each other in these. Because over time, <laughs> we're going to tend to get discouraged. You live in this world long enough, there's enough happening around us that will cause us to get discouraged. And 2020 was one of those years. And so, get it back into perspective. So this is, this is the challenge. So let's begin with this first, let us. Let us draw near in faith. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You know what he's speaking about? He's speaking about relationship. When God says to you, draw near. That's amazing. He's not just pointing his finger handing you a script, telling you about something. He's saying, I want you to draw near to me. This is where we need to be, drawing near to God. And the challenge is speaking to every one of us. The problem always was, and this is where you get this, this imagery back in the Old Testament, the problem always was that there are two things about God that make this hard to come to God. It's just hard to come to God. One is that God is holy. He is, he dwells in unapproachable light. He is, he is so pure. And you read through Leviticus, he is so holy and so particular and so detailed about everything. God doesn't have any sin in his presence. And that's one thing you come away from reading Leviticus, God is a holy God, and he demands holiness. And you see that in the, in the whole picture there. But God is also incredibly loving. He created you. He created me. He loves us. He's expressed his love in all through the Bible. We see the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. So the the love of God is saying to you, come to me. The holiness of God is saying, hold back. 
You can't enter my presence because you're unclean. Because all of us have been infected by sin. So what solves that problem? <laughs> what solves that tension? It's Jesus. And this is what the Old Testament is speaking about in shadows. And it is fulfilled in the New Testament. So this imagery, the shadow of things to come, we read about in the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle. And, and you get all the dimensions of the tabernacle, you all the materials of the tabernacle. Think, Man, I just get my mind around all of this stuff. But you see that God is so exact, so precise. It, everything is right. Everything is measured. Everything is perfect, just like him. And so you, you, God wants his people to come to him, but since they can't, he provides a way through the sacrificial system. The tabernacle is where God dwells in a sense for them to understand how he dwells. God dwells in the tabernacle. And he is in the Holy of Holies. That's the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle. And only the high priest can go in there once a year and offer an atonement for sins by shedding a perfect lamb. Jesus is, later on we see, the perfect lamb. And he sheds the blood of this lamb to atone or to cover the sins of the people. So this priest, you hear about priests, you go to confession to have... You know, to tell the priest your sins, and so the priest is your intermediary. Uh, God doesn't require that anymore because Jesus has accomplished that for us. So this curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and inside there was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, most people know about that from Raiders of the Lost Ark, so <laughs> that's how they know about the Ark of the Covenant. But in this piece of furniture, this elaborate, very beautiful piece of furniture was the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. That's, that's his holiness, his truth and righteousness. And on top, in the middle, was the mercy seat. Two angels or cherubim covered with their wings this mercy seat. So you have the law of God that represents truth and righteousness and holiness and purity. And you have the mercy of God, the mercy seat. And the blood is sprinkled on this mercy seat. And... You say, well, why blood? <laughs> you say, why, why couldn't it be something else? Because blood it represents life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so when you, when you, whenever you're reading about blood in the Old Testament, you say, this is kind of a gory thing, but, but blood is our life. And when, when blood is shed, there's death. And so the penalty for our sin was death. Blood had to be shed. So rather than shed another person because that's just another sinner. I'm a sinner, they're a sinner. A lamb, a perfect lamb, in that sense, without blemish, that blood was used as a covering. But eventually, it had to be life for life, a perfect human being to cover the sin for a perfect human being, for an imperfect human being. And, and we all know that's Christ coming. You don't, you don't see it in the Old Testament as clearly because it's shadow. But this is what he speaks about. And so what happens is the shadow of Jesus coming is that God sends his only son who is the God-man. He is perfect in holiness, perfect in love. He lays down a perfect life in a, in a substitutionary fashion. In other words, he, he laid down his life for us. And 
it says that when he cried on the cross, it is finished. It wasn't that he was finished, but the mission was accomplished. And it says when he did that, the whole earth was dark, the earth shook with an earthquake, graves opened up, and believers who had anticipated him rose up and walked on the earth. <laughs> and it says in the temple, the curtain that separated the holy place and the holy of holies was ripped in two. It just was torn in two. And that's what it means when it says that it, the curtain was open, that is his flesh. His flesh was the curtain. It wasn't pushed aside and sneaking in. It was ripped in two forever. And so that's why when we, we read this, it says, let us come boldly. We don't come in cavalierly. We come in boldly and confidently with faith because this last sacrifice that Jesus made ended all sacrifices. And now we can come in and have a personal relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? So what does that change? Everything. It changes everything. In fact, when it says that he inaugurated, I love that word, he inaugurated, he started something new. It says, in a, a new and living way. The word new is not like the typical Greek word for new. We, they would use new for a lot of things. This word is two words put together, mean, meaning freshly slaughtered. I mean, it, it, the only place that I see that is found is here. New means freshly slaughtered. Jesus was freshly slaughtered. So he was new and living. So the lamb that was just slaughtered is living. That's the amazing thing. He died for our sins, and he rose again the third day. And the way is literally a road, is a, is a new and living way, which changes everything. So our boldness is in drawing near the confidence and assurance that we come with a true heart, which really means, not a perfect heart, it means I'm just being honest. It's the only way you can come to God. Have you heard the, the hymn, I'm sure you have, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come used to play that at the end of every Billy Graham crusade. I think it's magnificent. Come just as you are. You're honest. You know what, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've, I've done so much wrong, but I come the way I am. And his blood cleanses us from all sins. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What does it mean to have a, it's my, my conscience being sprinkled clean? Well, the blood was sprinkled. And symbolically, this clears my conscience from my sin. In Romans 8, 1, it says, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So I don't need, did you know that you don't need to feel guilty? In other words, he takes away your sin and the guilt. It's covered. And he says, our bodies are washed with pure water. Now, I know a lot of preachers would like to say that means baptism. <laughs> But there's really nothing in there that means baptism. What it means is, and you find this in Titus 3 and Ephesians 5, is that the washing of pure water 
is like the daily cleansing of regeneration or the daily cleansing of the word. So when, I, my, when I'm regenerated, I have a new life in Christ and the word of God is constantly washing me, cleansing me. It, it's, cha- it, it's, it's, it's making me walk in a right relationship with God. That's the power of that. So I know there's a lot that I'm, I'm, I'm covering here, but I, I want to get to this point. What God wants is for you and for me to draw near. He always has. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So I look up to him, I reach out to him, he's there. Jeremiah says, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you search for me with all your heart. I believe this, that this message of Hebrews is is for you personally, individually. You need to take this This is for me. It's also for us corporately. I don't mean like a corporation, but I mean like a body. It's like a family. This is for Valley Community Church to draw near. We individually and we collectively draw near. We're to do that on a regular basis. So when you think of faith, And I I struggle sometimes because I think, I don't have enough faith. (laughs) I feel that way when I pray. I feel that the way when I live. I don't have enough faith. So how would you define faith? And I have three ways, three words that I'd like to just share with you to think through faith. First of all, it's, it's sensing your need. It's sensing your need. How do I exercise faith? First, I got to know I I need something. Blaise Pascal said that within every person is a God-shaped vacuum. And you know what? At some point in your life, you're going to come to this place where I feel this emptiness. Can't explain it. Don't understand it. But that's the first thing you you realize that there's, there's something missing in my life. And that sensitivity or that sensing your need takes you to set the second part of this is searching for the evidence so it, it puts you on this search I have this need I want to I want to see it fulfilled and so I'm searching I'm looking for the evidence and all of a sudden God starts laying it out <laughs> I love this because I'll tell people many times hey just just tell God you want to know him. If he's real, make himself real. If you Seek him, and he will make himself known every single time. I've never seen it fail. And all of a sudden, you start going, wow, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. And God starts bringing evidence, powerful evidence, to show himself. The third part of this is acting. Acting on what you see. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not an emotion. Faith is taking God at his word. It's like this. You know, God is saying, take a step. I don't know. I don't know. I can't see out there real well, so I'm I'm nervous about this. That's why they call it faith. Otherwise, it would be sight. But but there's a bit of uncertainty, and, and, and yet it's not that I feel really confident or I feel really bold. It's like, I take the step. That guy said to me one time, he said, do you think it's like I'm going to take the leap? And I said, yep. (laughs) And uh, he came to understand what that meant. 
And so this is what God wants us to do is to draw near in that kind of faith. You sense your need, you're searching for the evidence, and you're stepping out in action. So when you get weary, when you get tired, when you get frazzled with all that's going along around you, remember this, to draw near in faith. Best place to be is coming close to God. So Jesus said, come to me, come to me. Well, start right here, you come to me. He invites you and you come. Secondly, let us hold fast to hope. Let us hold fast to hope. And hope is like faith's future. It is anticipation. It is, it is the, the faith what's coming ahead. Verse 23, it says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised, that is God, is faithful. So hold on to the confession of hope. In other words, get a grip. Get a grip. Get a grip on what? <laughs> you know, you say, I got a grip, and you're holding on to a rope that there's no end to it. <laughs> it's just dangling. But you get a grip on your confession of your hope. I remember when my daughter, Sarah, was a little girl. She was just probably a toddler, and we're going outside. The day, like this morning, the last couple of days, it was really icy outside, and I said, it's really slick. And uh, I said, jump up here and I'll hold you. It's really slippery. And so I picked her up and I said, hold on tight. I said, it's slippery. And, um, and she just grabbed around my neck really tight. And she said, I'll hold you, Daddy, so you don't fall. <laughs> now, her security in reality was not in her grip but mine, right? Our security and reality is God's grip on us, not my, my ability to grip onto him. So if you say to hang on to God and you'll be, no, no, God's hanging on to you. Sometimes we do lose our grip, don't we? We lose our hope. He still has us. But when I am holding on to him, it has me engaged in the process. In other words, there is a cooperation with him. My security, I'm no... In other words, when I, when I am weak in faith or weak in hope, I am no less secure in his grip. No less secure. I'm just as secure with a weak hope as I am with a strong hope. But I enjoy it more <laughs> when I'm believing, when I'm hoping, when I have a grip. And so what he wants us to do is to take a grip of him, our confession. So when you talk about confession in church, you may think of going to confessions. You may think of the Apostles' Creed confession. Uh, typically, a confession is, is a statement or something we say that I believe this, like the Apostles' Creed. You know, a lot of churches quote the Apostles' Creed every week, and it says, you know, the, the real core of what we believe. And, and it's good. It's, it's, it's very helpful. So when I think of the, the core indispensable truth of Christianity, because I, I do think this, so you have a lot of belief with Christianity, you have the indispensable core of it, that if you take one of those doctrines out, you no longer have Christianity. Does that make sense? I mean, there, there, there is a, there's an essence of it. In particular, I would say, and I, I wrote these four down, the authority of God's Word. 
In other words, what is truth? If, if, if you don't establish what is truth, anything can be truth, whatever people's opinion. So I, I believe the authority of God's word, that it is pure, righteous, it is all sufficient. And I'll tell you what, it's relevant. <laughs> it's relevant. Secondly, who God is. That, that the attributes of God, of being almighty and holy and righteous and good, is critical. The person and work of Jesus, that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins. And then finally, number four, would be the nature of salvation and eternal life is by grace through faith alone. The reformers said it this way, by grace alone, through faith alone, <laughs> in Christ alone. And so those are what I would say are non-negotiable truths that hold true, authentic Christianity together. These, what I just said to you, I would die for. Every one of those, I would die for. I would go to the stake. I would go to the cross. I would take the bullet for those truths. Now, there are some things I wouldn't. Like, do you believe in public schooling or homeschooling or Christian schooling? Or do you believe in what color carpet you have in your church? Or do you believe in classical music or more modern music? Or do you believe in hymns? And I wouldn't put that in the same category. Now, are they important? It can be to varying levels of importance. But, but here's, here's what I'm saying. That the church needs to be able to discern what truths are non-negotiable and what we flex in. I've got a very good friend who's a worship leader in a church uh, not far from here. Church that believes just like our church. I mean, salvation by grace through faith. They love God. They, you know, believe in disciple making. And, and I asked him, I said, how's your church going? Your church is probably our size, uh, maybe a little bit larger, maybe a couple, 300 people. And he said, it's really been bad. I said, really? This whole COVID thing. He said, we've lost a lot of people. And I said, for what reason? They're unhappy with the way we're doing things. And I said, so are they people that are to the right or to the left, or they, they want to be more strict or less strict? He said, both. So we've got half the church leaving because they think we need to be more strict, and the other half that are leaving because they think we ought to loosen up. Folks, I pray that would never happen to Valley Community Church. Are you hearing me? These are the exact things that the scriptures talk to us about. There are things you need to be able to die for. But there are other things that we have grace in. Years ago, this statement was made, and you may have heard it repeated it goes like this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So in essentials are the indispens indispensable doctrines of the core of Christianity we cannot budge on. We cannot budge on. The non-essentials, 
we allow each other grace. You know, even within the realm of my, my close friends, ministry friends, we have a lot of differences on a lot of things. And, but we agree on the core. And so we give grace to each other. You know, we don't, we don't argue about those things. We can talk about them. But in everything, what dominates the, the church ought to be loving one another. Now, if you ever want to work through this, Romans 14, Paul talks about how to deal with differences. Because every church has them. Every church has them differences. But we can be a church that has a lot of differences, a lot of uniqueness, and yet still get along. And still, still the main thing is the main thing. And my prayer is this, that Valley Community Church, even through the rest of this COVID thing and all the politics that have gone on this last year, I think God's really protected us. He really has. Uh, and I think I attribute it all to his grace and his goodness helping us. But it's a war. And we've got to be careful. We, we discern this and keep ourselves unified because what, what communicates an authentic Christianity to the rest of the world is our love for one another, not our divisiveness. And sad to say that, that the, the church as a whole has become just as bad as the world. And they're fighting. This is why we stick together and we... Continue to pray for one another and encourage one another in that. So, when we get weary, we get discouraged, we draw near in faith, we hold fast in hope, and finally, we consider one another. Let us consider one another in love. This is what it says in verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. That, that's the essence of this. We consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. And then he goes on to say this, not neglecting to gather together. Say, well, we've been doing that this year. We've been neglecting. I'll get to that in a minute. Don't neglect gathering together, as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day approaching would be the, the coming of Christ. He said, he said, Go spread the news, go tell the world the good news of the gospel, and I'm coming again. I'm coming again to take you up with me to heaven. So as we battle these things, he says, don't quit meeting together. Now, I believe we've, we've had to find some creative ways. <laughs> uh, we've kept meeting together in those creative ways. I, I feel like we've done it the way the Lord has directed us to be able to do that. I don't feel we've disobeyed this command. But when we consider one another, it means I am mindful of and thoughtful of you over myself. To remind myself that, that this is not about me, this is about the family of believers, and that I am part of something bigger than me. That includes the pastor. This is bigger than me. This is our family. And so to be considerate and thoughtful. That's why when, when the mask, no mask, the the Trump, anti-Trump, Democrat, those things should not divide the church because when I, if I'm considerate and thoughtful and careful and loving, that doesn't happen. And so, how do we do that? How, how, do, we, how do we maintain that kind of unity? By provoking one another. Now, you know what this word means, provoke? 
it actually means irritate, provoke. It means exactly, says, is that really, how do you provoke someone to love? Now, I remember back in a long time ago, a very long time ago, when they had sedans, and if you had three kids, they sat on the bench seat and the back seat. Remember that? One next to an, another. And you created neutral space. You remember that? This is before minivans. I know I'm going back. I'm going way back. When they came out with minivans, I thought, finally, <laughs> we, can get, we can separate these kids. But, you know, they, they'd, be, they'd be touching each other. They'd touching each other. Touching. Poking. Poking. They stop the car. They get out. Have a conversation. Get back in. Head on the trip. Exact same word. We are to stimulate. We are to spur each other on. We're to, we're to provoke one another to love. What does love look like? Well, I could define it, 1 Corinthians 13, all through the New Testament, but probably the best way to, to show it is the way Christ loved you. The agape love is different than the four other translations of love in the New Testament. Agape love is unconditional. That means I, I love regardless of what you do. What you, how you treat me and what you do does not affect my love. And I provoke it, I provoke it, I provoke love. And good works fits right with that because good works will follow love. Real love produces. So what does that look like practically for us? Well, meeting together regularly as we can. Over the last 2,000 years in the history of the church, and I've kind of went through this, I've had a lot of time to be able to do some of these things, going through church history, and you know this, that this isn't the first time church attendance has been interrupted. In fact, the first 300 years, the church was under intense persecution. People were being put to death. They, they were not allowed to meet. It was illegal to meet. For 300 years, there have been famines, there have been plagues, there have been political orders. There have been many reasons why the church has not been able to meet. I remember when I was in college praying for Georgie Venz, who was in Russia, put in prison. And later on, he showed all of these believers gathering in Siberia in the middle of the woods in the wintertime, sub-zero temperatures, in, in the woods, gathering their big coats and hats, praying and singing. Were they risking something meeting together? Yeah. Being arrested, being shot. Families being separated, and that actually did happen. I am not comparing what we've been through this year to any of that. I'm just saying that the church has always been challenged with gathering together. So what we do, like any other time, we try to walk in wisdom, gather together what he's given to us, and move forward. This is what we do, encouraging one another. And we do that in our psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We do that through the preaching and teaching of word, by giving of our tithes and offerings and celebrating communion and baptism and serving one another until the day he comes. Until the day he comes. So until he comes, draw near in faith, hold fast to hope, Consider one another in love and keep on doing this. Keep on doing this individually and together. So here's my takeaway. Everything has changed when you come to Christ.
Everything gets tested. So let us continue meeting together as we're able and encouraging one another in faith, hope, and love until he comes for us. Let's bow together as we pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word because it helps us. It, it opens our eyes and our hearts. It, it gives us teaching that brings us along in our faith. And I, I pray that today it's done that. If there's someone here that has never put their faith and trust in you as their personal Savior, Lord, may that be today. If someone has been doubting you, struggling, faltering in their faith, losing their hope, Lord, I pray you'd remind them of these great truths. May we be a church that shows to the world genuine faith, real hope, and amazing love in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.